Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Romans 13. This is the last of our uh, miscited, misquoted, misunderstood passages. That's the series we've been in, really for about a half a year. Starting uh, next week, we're going to be in 2 Kings, and we're going to look at the life of Elisha. I've never taught through the life of Elisha, so we'll learn it together. Uh, Betty Ann and I were gone for a few weeks and uh, put about 4,000 miles on our car and visited a lot of family in Georgia and in Florida. I got to worship in three different churches that my family attend. Two are Bible churches, and one is a uh, Southern Baptist church, and that was great. In uh, the Bible church down in Fort Myers, they have a stage just a little lower than this. And the senior pastor, I've heard him a couple times, he's excellent. Uh, two weeks ago, he walked off the edge of the uh, stage and broke both wrists and uh, was having surgery the day after, so I didn't get to hear him preach. But I thought, you know what? I'm getting a little older. I might uh, back up just a little bit. Uh, but I was uh, quite taken back by the story. Uh, one quick story of my grandson, Ronan Jeffrey. He's two. Um, I notice his parents call him Ronan until he's in trouble, and then they call him Ronan Jeffrey. I don't like that. So I started calling him Ronan Jeffrey, and uh, on his own, two-year-olds can do this, he started calling me Popo Jeffrey. <laughs> so uh, he's Ronan Jeffrey, I'm Popo Jeffrey. In fact, I was talking to him yesterday on Facebook or FaceTime, I guess, and uh, he called me uh, Popo Jeffrey, so I liked that. <laughs> Let's go ahead and ask God to guide our time. Father God, it has been rich to look at a number of passages that sometimes uh, are misquoted or miscited or misunderstood. We want to rightly divide your word. And so we ask, Lord, that we would do so today and then in accordance with Acts 17, may each person be a Berean and compare what is said to your word because we desire to be changed by your truth, not man's opinions. Guide us, we ask, in the name of Christ. Amen. Some of you may know William Tyndale. He was a very early 16th century reformer. He was born in the 15th century on the border between England and Wales. His parents were rather poor farmers which in his day meant that he was not afforded a great education, but he was utterly brilliant. William Tyndale became not just literate, but he was competent in eight languages. Greek, Hebrew, Latin, English, French, German, Italian, and Spanish. Because of that brilliance, he was admitted, even though he couldn't afford it, to Oxford University. And by age 21, he had earned both a bachelor's and a master's degree. 
And he so desired that people know the Bible in their native language. Understand what is going on at this time period in Europe and on the island. Many clergy are illiterate. They are unable to read or write even in their native tongue. Those who are literate are generally literate in their native tongue. But the universal church has mandated that all masses, all sermons be given in Latin. And the Bible, the only one available is the Latin Vulgate. And so rather than being transformational in people's lives, the Latin Vulgate became an altar showpiece. And so you have these illiterate or one language, native language priests and pastors who have memorized a few liturgies and masses in a language they don't understand, and they give them week after week to a congregant and congregation that do not understand it. And rather than the Bible being transformational in people's lives, idolatry reigns, immorality reigns, drunkenness reigns. William Tyndale wants to change that. William Tyndale wants to translate the Bible into English. Now, a translation, that's actually a technical word, that's going from Greek and Hebrew into a native tongue. That's what a translation is. It's actually looking at the original Hebrew, Old Testament, and Greek, New Testament. Well, William Tyndale is competent to do this. Most translations are a team of scholars He's a one-man show. How competent is William Tyndale's translation? Unbelievable. A hundred years later, King James I authorizes an actual authorized translation in English. We know it as the 1611 King James Version. What you may or may not know is that over 90% of the King James Version has borrowed, lifted, stolen, you choose your word, Word for word, Tyndale's translation. More than nine out of 10 words were Tyndale's. 1952, 400 years later, the Revised Standard Version came into the English language. 75% of the Revised Standard Version has borrowed, lifted, stolen, you pick your word, right from William Tyndale 400 years earlier. It's a remarkable translation, and it's illegal. The civil government has told him he may not translate it. The Bishop of London has told him he may not translate the Latin Vulgate, or in this case, the Hebrew and the Greek manuscripts into English. And he breaks the law, and he translates the entire New Testament into English. My question is this. Romans 13.1 says, submit to the governing authorities. It will go on to say that there are no authorities except that which is given by God. Was William Tyndale wrong? Was it sinful for him to translate the Bible into the English language? Let me modernize my illustration. Although numbers differ, missiologists tell us that 
the underground illegal church in China today is probably 200 million. There are 200 million Christ followers that are not in authorized churches that are breaking the law in house churches in their country. The legal authorized church called the Three Self Church has 43 and a half million adherents. About 10 years ago, in the authorized church, they were using the Bible as we have it and prayers as we know them as long as they didn't criticize the government. That is no longer the case. Not only can you not proselytize, but the Bible is now an authorized version from the socialist government, the communist government of China, quite distinct from the Bible that we have. And so I ask you, are 200 million Christ followers in the illegal, non-authorized, underground church in China, are they sinning by gathering together and studying God's word and praying and evangelizing, proselytizing, and the like. Because Romans 13.1 says, submit to the governing authorities. And the last part of Romans 1, or verse 1 and then 2 says, there are no authority except that which is given by God. How are we to understand this text? Let me pick up and read Romans 13.1-5. We're also going to look at verses 6 and 7 a little bit later on, but I want to be honest. I'm going to spend almost the entire sermon on verses 1 and 2. Let me read it. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. That's capital punishment. For he is the servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoing. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. I think at first blush, we can all agree that one conclusion of the text is this. Christ's followers ought to be excellent citizens. We ought to be among the best citizens of any nation that we are a part of. Certainly not the greatest grumblers or complainers, but the ones who stand in the gap, who impact our society for the kingdom. A second conclusion that we might draw is that submission is not only a biblical word, it's an act of worship on our part. When we submit to the authorities that God places in our lives, we worship God. Now that's very tough because we don't like to submit. We've never wanted to submit. Think back in Genesis chapter three, God gives Adam and Eve an incredible garden and he says, you can enjoy the fruit of any tree, but do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, surely you will die. And what do they end up doing? 
They eat of the tree, the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. And just in case we want to pile on them, we remember in Romans 5.12 that Paul makes the point that if you've been there, had I been there, we would have done the same thing. That's why Adam's guilt is imputed to us. We don't like submission. Our republic doesn't like submission. As people, we don't like submission. Submission is all over the Bible. And it's an act of worship when we submit to the authorities God places in our lives. 1 Corinthians 10.31, we ultimately submit to God and his word. 1 Peter 2.17 in today's text, we submit to the governing authorities. All of Ephesians 5 and 6 and the latter part of Colossians 3 and 4, we submit in our homes. Colossians 3.23, we ought to be the best employees because we're submitting to God as we submit to our employers. Hebrews 13.17, we even submit within the church. Submission is a biblical word. And Romans 13.1 says submit to the governing authorities. That word submit is hypotasso. It's actually a military term. It was used of someone who is of a lesser rank submitting to someone who is of a superior rank. It's not a comforting word. We don't like the idea of submitting. Think of the Apostle Paul. Think of how this must have impacted Paul when he writes, submit to the governing authorities. I think Paul is writing the epistle to the Romans in AD 57. He's writing to the church in Rome. Who is the Roman emperor in AD 57? That would be Nero. Nero is the Roman emperor from AD 54 to 68. This is the emperor who will martyr Peter and Paul. Now, Paul doesn't know likely that he'll be martyred at this point, but God's spirit does. And God's spirit led Paul to write, submit to the governing authorities to the church at Rome who is led by an emperor that will martyr Paul. But it's worse than that. This emperor Nero will dip Christ followers in tar and light them on fire as human candles in his circus garden parties. He is a monster of a man. Imagine being Paul, being led by God's spirit, writing to the church in the city in which this man is the emperor and being told by God to write, submit to the governing authorities. Because no authority has been given except that which God has given. But it's even more than that. How long has Rome had its boot on the collective throat of every Jew? 120 years. We have to go back to 63 BC, General Pompey, who ransacks Jerusalem, takes over Israel. It's 120 years that the Jews have had to submit to Rome. But it's more than that. Prior to Rome, it was Greece. Prior to Greece, 
it was Medo-Persia. Prior to Medo-Persia, it was Babylon. Prior to Babylon, it was Assyria. Prior to Assyria, it was Egypt. I just brought us back to 1450 BC. For 1,500 years, much more on again than off again, Rome has been subjecting, Greece has been subjecting, the Medo-Persian Empire, Babylon, the Assyrians, the Egyptians have been subjecting the Jews to servile abuse. And yet God tells Paul, a Jew, to write, submit to the governing authorities. Wouldn't you like him to write something different? But we don't get to choose what God has anyone write. We get to obey it and with joy. I think of William Wallace. You probably know him from Braveheart, Mel Gibson. William Wallace in the 13th century helped lead the overthrow of Scotland under the bondage of England, leading to Robert the Bruce and Scottish freedom. I'm not recommending Braveheart to you, but if you know the account of William Wallace, you know that towards the end of his life, he was captured, he was tortured, he was put on the rack, and he was beheaded. And his legend has it, and Braveheart recorded the legend. In his final breath, he cried out, Freedom! Isn't that what you wish Paul had written? But he didn't. He said, submit to the governing authorities. In fact, he goes on in verses 6 to 7 to say one type of submission is with our taxes. For because of this, that is because God has placed this authority in your life, for because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And you say, come on, Paul, really? All he's doing is quoting Jesus. Matthew 22, 20, and 21. And Jesus said, whose inscription and likeness is this? They hand him a coin. He said, this is the inscription of Caesar. And you remember what Jesus said? Render to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. Render to God what belongs to God. Silver and gold, a little of it belongs to Caesar. Give it to him. It's an integrity issue. What belongs to God? Who are we marked with? The imago Dei of God. The image of God. We belong to God. Give to God what belongs to God. That is our lives. Every part of our being belongs to God. That's what God demands of us. Caesar, he gets a little silver and gold. God demands every part of your life and of mine. Now, you and I may hate the way our government spends money. We may think some of it is immoral, unethical. That has been true in every one of the governments that I've already talked about. And yet, Jesus said, render to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. Render to God what belongs to God. 
Submit to the governing authorities. One way we submit is that we pray. We stand in the gap on behalf of our nation. November's coming. An election year, probably the least favorite of every pastor in America. Hands down. You want to know what happens in pastor conferences right at this time? We talk about how to survive through November. I'm not joking. That really is the conversation. Because it's so divisive in our churches. It's so divisive. But you know what's going to happen no matter who is elected? I've been doing it for three decades. I'm going to stand up here and I'm going to pray by name for the leaders who are elected. Those leaders may be the ones that I voted for. They may be ones I didn't vote for. But why would we do that? Because God commands it. Let me read from 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 and 2. In 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, this is written, I think, in AD 65, maybe AD 64. Paul will be murdered, martyred within one and a half years. He said, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We are called to pray on behalf of our nation. We're called to stand in the gap. If we're not praying for our nation, who is? If we're not praying for our president, who is? If we're not praying for our judiciary, the legislative branch, who is? We are called, we are privileged to stand in the gap. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Part of that is a desire for God's best in our land. Let me illustrate it. The illustration comes from 605 and 586 BC. That's the time period when Babylon, the Chaldeans, come and ransack the Jews and many young Jewish males, maybe females as well, but we know many young Jewish males are carried 800 miles into captivity. Now, in the Bible, there are three archetypical wicked cities, right? Sodom, Gomorrah, and Babylon. If you got to pick which is the wickedest, it's got to be Babylon. Shows up in Revelation 17. Babylon the harlot, the prostitute. It's the most wicked city archetypical that the Bible gives us. And so these Jews are carried into captivity. They've been ripped from their families, ripped from their land. It's going to be a 70-year captivity under Babylon and the Medo-Persian Empire. Most will never go home. They will never see their family again. I can imagine when the Jews get together, they're griping and complaining. And listen to what God says through Jeremiah in the midst of this. Jeremiah 29, verse 7. God's words. But seek the welfare of the city. What city are they in? Babylon. But seek the welfare of Babylon, where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So Christians, Christ followers, are called to stand in the gap. We're called to render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. 
We're called to pray. And we're called to seek the welfare of the city, the county, the state, the nation that we are in. And as we seek the welfare of the nation, the state, the county, the city, the town that we are in, God in turn will bring welfare into our lives. Christians are called to stand in the gap. Are you Christ follower? Am I Christ follower? Are we standing in the gap? God has given us this responsibility. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. No other authority has been given except that which is given by God. Does that mean that the best person is always elected to an office? No. Does that mean that the most godly person is always elected to an office? No. Does that mean that if God were to choose the most godly person, that's who he would have chosen? No. But it does mean that God raises up and removes people at his will. <clears throat> Sometimes God allows us to elect individuals who are godly. Praise the Lord. Sometimes he allows us to follow the foolishness of our vote or non-vote. You want to influence your country? your state, your county, vote. How can we be salt and light and be a group that doesn't vote? God is calling us to stand in the gap. That includes our vote. Never would tell you how to vote. But that you ought to vote, that's being salt and light. God is urging you to use your influence, to stand in the gap for the nation, the county, the state, whatever that we are in. We are to seek the welfare of the city that we are in. No authority has been placed there. Sometimes God allows us to get what we voted for or didn't. Sometimes God chastises us isn't that the book of Habakkuk? <laughs> Excuse me. In the book of Habakkuk, you have this prophet. He's angry at Judah. He's a prophet of Judah, and he knows that they're evil. And they seem to be getting away with it, so he's angry at God. Uh, we never, by the way, are given permission to be angry at God. Sometimes people say, uh, God can take it. Go ahead and be angry with him. <laughs> well, maybe that's an emotion, but... The Bible doesn't encourage that emotion at that moment. Uh, yes, God can take it, but you have no right, and neither do I. But Habakkuk was angry with God, and he essentially said to God, if I were God and not you, I would chastise Judah. And so God said, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's do it. And he brings in the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. And now Habakkuk's really angry, right? He builds a rampart and says, God, I'm not coming down until you answer me. Don't ever do that to God. You don't want to hear the answer. But that's what he did. And then 
unbeknownst to Habakkuk, Babylon doesn't get away with it because Medo-Persia comes and ransacks Babylon. We only see a small portion of life. God sees the beginning from the end. So sometimes God allows us to elect godly individuals, praise him. Sometimes because of our non-vote or our poor vote, he allows us to elect really poor leaders. Sometimes he brings poor leaders into a nation to chastise a nation that's been rebellious to him. But don't ever believe that God is not sovereign, that God is not in control, that God cannot add or remove leaders at his lesion. He absolutely can. So what are we to do with the text? How are we to apply the text? Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. I want to go back to my opening illustrations. Was William Tyndale wrong to translate the Bible? No, there's higher law. And the higher law says that we are to stand in the gap. We are to be salt and light. And he was being salt and light to a nation that needed the Bible. What about the 200 million Christ followers in China who are in an illegal, unauthorized church? They're right. They're right. They're right to hear the word of God. They're right to pray. They're right to proselytize in spite of what the government says. Are there limits to government? Yes. Higher law, God's law. It's all over scripture. Let me look first at Acts 4 and Acts 5. In Acts 4, we have authorities telling the apostles that you cannot preach, you cannot teach, you cannot proselytize. Listen to what they say in Acts 4, 19 and 20. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They were saying, you can't share the gospel. And Peter's saying, hey, there's higher law. I'm not going to obey yours. Then in chapter 5, Peter has a conversation with the high priest. The high priest speaks first, and then Peter speaks next. Let me read it to us. Acts 5, 28 and 29. The high priest says, we strictly charged you, apostles, not to teach in this name, in the name of Jesus. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man, Jesus' blood, upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. There's always higher law. We are to be the best citizens. We are to stand in the gap. We are to pray and influence and vote for who we believe would be most godly. Absolutely. We are to obey the laws of the land. Absolutely. We are to pay our taxes. It's an act of integrity. But there's higher law. And when we are told to disobey higher law, we always obey God. Always. We see this in the first chapter of Exodus. Here the Pharaoh, the Egyptian king, tells the midwives that when a Jewish male baby is born, murder the baby. Exodus 1, 17 to 20. And the midwives won't do it. They appeal to higher law, and in verse 20, it says that God was so pleased with them that he blessed them. I think of Daniel chapter 3. You have Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. They're part of those boys with Jeremiah, ripped from the fabric of their family, carried 800, 850 miles to Babylon. And now Nebuchadnezzar is the ruler. He's built his 
towering idol of himself. And when the music plays, everybody hits pay dirt and must bow before it, and they won't. And they're given a second chance, and they won't because that's idolatry. And higher law says you only bow to the Lord, never to man. And so a furnace is heated seven times its normal heat. They're thrown in, but before they're thrown in, they say, know this, God can save us, but if he doesn't, we still will not obey. We're going to obey God rather than man. And you remember, God sends a fourth. It's gotta be Jesus who rescues the three. And not only are they saved from the flames, but then they're promoted because God has blessed them. Sometimes God allows martyrdom, not this time. Daniel chapter six. You have Darius, now a Medo-Persian king, who makes a foolish law that for the next month, you can't pray to God, but you've gotta, you gotta pray to him. Daniel will have none of it. He prays in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, which is what a Jew will do. Somebody snitches on him and he's thrown into a den of lions and God closes the mouth. God doesn't always do that, but he did this time. And Daniel is rescued and he stands in the gap First in Babylon, then in the Medo Persian Empire, he stands in the gap and lives for the Lord. And he appeals to higher law when man's law violates God's law. I think Romans 13 is rather clear. We ought to be the best citizens, we ought to stand in the gap for other citizens, we ought to vote for change. We ought to let our letters, legislators know what we believe. We ought to pray for our leaders. We ought to pray for God's prosperity and hand of blessing. We ought to be salt and light. But we also have to know that higher law, God's law, always trumps man's law. So I can't participate in anything like abortion. Because those in the womb, Psalm 139, 13 to 16, are stamped with the Imago Dei, the image of God. And they're too precious, too precious to be destroyed. I can't participate in euthanasia. Same reason. The image of God is stamped on every person. I can't participate in the sexual revolution. Because God has said intimacy is a gift in a husband-wife marriage relationship, not before or outside of it. I can't participate in calling somebody the wrong gender pronoun. I recognize that gender dysphoria is real. And my heart goes out, especially to young people who are confused and the adults of this land are not acting like adults. It is not loving. It is not loving to allow individuals to remain confused on how they were made by God. And so I can't participate in that. I can't participate in syncretistic religion that would allow someone to believe that there's more than one way to God. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I can't compromise on that because it's not loving. It's leading someone to an eternity of destruction. 
Romans 13 says that we ought to be the best citizens. We ought to stand in the gap. Christ follower, are you, am I, are we standing in the gap? Are we praying for our leaders? Ones we appreciate, ones we don't. Are we honest with our taxes? Do we submit to authorities that God has brought into our life? And do we understand that there's higher law? And that's God's law. But unless higher law is breached, then I obey man's law, and I am the best citizen I can be. Christ followers stand in the gap. That's what we're called to do. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we ask that we would be the best citizens for your glory. And as Jeremiah 29, 7 says, even for our betterment. Father, help us to honor you by honoring submission to authority and to honor you by always honoring your law above all else. Allow us to be salt and light for your glory. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.